Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bodies that haunt Hollywood and try to find out why they went to their graves. This week... Danny's movie didn't make any money, Mrs. Torrance. This is Dr. Sleep. (laughs) This is a tale of horror and blood. Let's go! Stop Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about scary movies that are bad. We are a podcast about scary movies that did badly. That's right. I'm John Drake, in-house film critic of my Shutter account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a demon with horns and bat wings and summonings about movies. Movies like Dr. Sleep, which we'll be talking about today. Very excited. But before we get into that, Ian, how are you doing this kickoff week of spooky season? It feels like I'm not getting enough sleep. I should probably see a doctor. Oh, boy. But wait a minute. I just did. Oh. His name's Ewan McGregor, and I'm feeling better already. Excellent. Good kickoff to spooky season. How are you doing? I just got home from the Big E, Ooh. which is not a ecstasy trip. That's not what's going on in my life okay. at this stage. It is the Eastern States Exposition, which is like instead of doing one fair for every state in New England, they do one big fair for all the New England states. Convenient. So it's massive. We try to go every year, and today was the day we decided to go. Neat. It's in Springfield, Massachusetts, for any of our listeners in that area that are not familiar with it and want to check it out, but I think everyone in the area is familiar with it. It's kind of a big deal. What do you do at a state fair or a multi-state fair? Oh, you eat, you drink, you go on rides, buy stuff you don't need, you wander around and browse the wares. Is there a pavilion that features just tons of fiberglass hot tubs? Yeah, actually there is. <laughs> There's a hot tub pavilion. <laughs> that's, and uh, That's my experience with county fairs. I don't know why. I don't know why either. But that's where the hot tub companies come to do their business. Yeah, my mom wants to buy a hot tub. She was like, I went to the Big E. I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> what did you eat? She's like, no, I went at like 9 a.m., looked at the hot tubs and then left. Scoping out the hot tubs. It's like $15 to get in. <laughs> you just did something you could do on the internet for free, like looking at hot tubs and what they cost. But then every state has their own little building, which is cool too. So if you want just stuff from Vermont, you go into the Vermont building. Oh, okay. I got some nice habanero cheddar in Vermont. Cool. Vermont cheddar is like a thing, I guess. It's a dairy kind of a state, right? Dairy and maple uh-huh. and beer. Not a bad combo. No, three of my favorite things. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I've only had two beers all day though. Anyway, I had to record. And also I went with my kids. We try to go twice every year, once with the kids, once without, but this oh. year we were just too busy. So we did one with the kids. Just kids so, style. I don't want to get super drunk and wheel your kids around in a little cart. No, that worked out bad for Jack Torrance. Exactly. All work and no play. <laughs> but did you happen to watch anything this week you wanted to tell the listeners about? Speaking of adaptations, books by our favorite fantasy and horror novelists, I rewatched an old favorite, Stardust from 2007, mm. which is currently available on HBO Max for my Max mates. It's a movie based on a Neil Gaiman book, one of my favorite writers. It's this cool fairy tale type romance thing. It's got witches, it's got curses. It transports you to one of Gaiman's unique fantasy worlds, which are always a cool combination of traditionalism and his fresh takes on stuff. It's got cool performances. Charlie Cox stars in it, who you may know from Daredevil. and Boardwalk I- Empire, too. He was a big part of Oh, okay. Claire Danes is great in it. Michelle Pfeiffer. Surprise visit from Bobby De Niro. Plus, if you like actors who play superheroes, there's a little part from Henry Cavill in it. And it's a bomb, and it's on our calendar, but not until 2025. We can always move it up, Ian, if you really want to talk about it. But- <laughs> no, that's fine. I- I'm not in a rush, but it's something that I watched recently, and I wanted to recommend to our listeners. I think I'd find it weird seeing a Bobby De Niro in a fantasy movie. I can't picture him buying into it. Oh, he buys into it hard. He is going for it with this character. I'm happy anytime Robert De Niro goes for it at his big age. (laughs) So I support this. I haven't watched any movies besides Dr. Sleep to talk about this week. So I wanted to bring a show because I've watched plenty of shows. Wanted to talk about Andor, 
a little bit. Ah. The new Star Wars prequel based on Diego Luna's character from Rogue One, Cassian Andor. Okay. Rogue One is a favorite of mine. I'm a big fan of that movie. And Tony Gilroy, who created the show as well. Okay. And this is like the best Star Wars thing that's come out since season one of The Mandalorian. And it might even be better than that. Oh, nice. Uh, the show is really good. It at times doesn't feel like Star Wars, which feels like faint praise for a Star Wars show. But I think they were starting to feel formulaic. I kind of touched on it a little bit when I was talking about Thor, Love and Thunder. I lumped them together and said Disney properties just seem to have a weird degree of everything is setting up something else. And Andor doesn't really seem concerned with any of that. It's just telling a cool, almost like borderline noir crime story centered around this cool character. I really am digging it. I'm a big Diego Luna fan, so I was buying in immediately, but it's well worth your time, even if you've been underwhelmed by some of the recent Star Wars output. I'm also like really over prequels lately because it feels like everyone's scared to push the narrative forward and they just want to go back to where the stakes are a little bit lower. But I don't know. I, I don't feel a lot of that with this. It, it just feels like they had a story they wanted to tell and it doesn't feel noted to death. You see the creator's fingerprints all over it and then like the stars cool. are able to do what made them stars in the first place. It's really solid. I really recommend it. That sounds really good. I'm looking forward to checking this one out. But uh, Dr. Sleep, let's get into it because that's what we're here to talk about this week. Yeah. We're kicking off Blastober in a big way, literally and figuratively, an adaptation from a writer we're both quite fond of, what also has to function as a sequel to one of the most beloved horror movies of all time. Seriously. And is three hours long. So <laughs> there's a lot to digest here. What did you, what did you know about this movie before we sat down for the podcast? I didn't read this book. I'm not even sure if I knew that King had written the book. I'd been a big King fan. I'd fallen out of touch with his last couple decades of work. I don't think I really noticed when the movie hit the theaters, which we talk about how its theatrical release went down. But then I did hear about it when it got to HBO Max and I was intrigued. I said, hey, that sounds like something cool that I would like. And I watched it pretty much right away, maybe the weekend that it dropped on HBO Max. And I was like, this was great. I loved it then. And so I was really delighted to come back to it this week and then find out that on multiple rewatches, I just keep liking it more and more. Now, when you watched it originally on HBO Max, did you watch the director's cut? I think I did. Now, I remember there was a trick. You would go into the page on HBO Max and there would be the movie. And then you would scroll down to the section of extras where there's usually like behind the scenes stuff. And there right. was the director's cut. And somehow I think I managed, I don't know why or how I found my way to clicking on that instead of the main movie. And I think I did watch the director's cut the first time. I think the director's cut was ready to go by the time they released the movie at all on streaming. So it probably was getting a lot of press. It's like, oh, if you like Dr. Sleep, the director's cut's even better. So when you heard about it, I bet somebody mentioned to make sure it's the director's cut. Not that the theatrical cut is bad at all. Until I started researching for the podcast, I'd only seen the director's cut. I watched mm -hmm. it probably around the same time you did. And it was definitely the director's cut. And then the first time I watched it for the podcast, it was also the director's cut. And then you were doing your rewatch with the theatrical cut. So I figured I'd do the same. And uh, the director's cut is better, but the theatrical cut's not a slouch by any means. I think it was still a really solid movie. It's a case of a director who poured just a ton of stuff into this. So the cut scenes are not really indulgences, but they're more, they're indulgences in a certain way. They're indulgences into the characters because he really goes deep on building multiple characters in this movie as though it were a Stephen King novel that had just mm -hmm. hundreds of pages to spend building worlds and telling you about people's lives. And so those are good kind of indulgences. So I did read Dr. Sleep. I did not like it. I don't know if I went back to it now with the movies fresh in my mind, if I would like it more, but I think it's pretty different from the movie. I think the book is like real bug shit crazy in the way that King can be when he lets himself go. And I think that was kind of the consensus is that it wasn't like a knockout home run book. He's got a few of those in the last 20 years, and this was not one that critics all agreed was excellent. It got a pretty mixed reception. So we could argue about why this movie failed to find an audience that could be part of it. It's just based on a book that not that many people likes. But it's got great bones. Not having read it, I can't say what was, I can imagine what was weird about the King book because I know that feeling when he gets a little buggy and off-putting in his stylistic touches, but the bones are so great. What could be better? Here's Danny Torrance, grown up, suffering from this incredible trauma that he lived through as a child and then meeting 
meeting another charismatic young kid with a shining and trying to keep them safe and deal with another big source of evil in the world. And all those things, there's nothing like, oh, that was a weird idea and we have to live with it for the whole movie. They all seem good. All the characters and the components to the story seem like straight ahead and smart and solid. And interestingly enough, the part of the movie we both agree is the weakest was a complete addition. It's not something that occurs in the book. We'll talk more about that when we get there, but yeah. you know of what I refer. Sure. Do you want to talk a little bit about the making of this movie? It wasn't the decades-long journey to get to the theaters like some of the movies we've covered lately, but it also wasn't an immediate green light, so there's some meat on the bone there. Yeah, let's hear how this thing happened. All right. In 1980, Stanley Kubrick's film adaptation of Stephen King's 1997 novel The Shining was released, and King loved it and everybody was happy. Just kidding, Stephen King absolutely hated it and trashed it at every opportunity, going so far as to write the teleplay for a 1997 miniseries which he endorsed as a much more faithful telling of his story, even though it sucks super hard. You know what else sucks super hard? Not being as rich as Stephen King. King wasn't done with the Torrances, though, as he'd catch up with adult Danny Torrance in his 2013 sequel novel Doctor Sleep. Warner Brothers Pictures was keen to adopt the novel into a movie as early as 2014, and by 2016, Akiva Goldsman had signed on to write and produce the film. Ooh, this story's getting scary. Securing a budget for the movie was difficult at first, but after the runaway success of 2017's King adaptation, It, Dr. Sleep was fast-tracked and horror master Mike Flanagan, fresh off adapting the quote-unquote unfilmable King novel Gerald's Game to rave reviews, was hired to rewrite Goldsman's script and direct the film. Flanagan presented King with both a problem and a solution. General audiences were much more familiar with Kubrick's film than they were with King's novel and miniseries, so the Dr. Sleep movie needed to function as essentially a sequel to Kubrick's film first and foremost. King relented and casting was underway. Ewan McGregor, Rebecca Ferguson, Kylie Curran, Cliff Curtis, and Zon McLaren were cast as the leads, with several actors also being chosen to portray iconic characters from Kubrick's film. You're cast as the caretaker. You've always been cast as the caretaker. With a $55 million budget secured, filming took place in Georgia. Between September and December of 2018, a release date of November 8, 2019 was chosen, with Warner Brothers releasing the movie after Halloween for some reason. The theatrical cut clocked in at a whopping 152 minutes, but critics loved it as it currently has a 78% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Audiences were less enthusiastic, though, as the film's long runtime and connection to a nearly 40-year-old film hampered its potential. It would leave theaters with $72.3 million in worldwide gross, but its story wouldn't end there. Flanagan release his three-hour long director's cut, which was even better received than the theatrical, but all the critical accolades couldn't save the future of the franchise, as a proposed Dick Halloran prequel and an Abra Stone-focused sequel were both canceled due to Dr. Sleep's disappointing box office. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah, I would have loved to see Mike Flanagan in this world again. And maybe he still will be. He's teasing that he's still got irons in the Stephen King fire. I don't know if it's going to be those particular projects, but I think we'll see more from him. I'm bummed he's not manning the Salem's Lot series because Mm. I think that material would work really well with him. Or if anyone was ever going to do The Dark Tower, let it be Mike Flanagan, please, while he's still young and he can get all (laughs) seven books filmed. Yeah, but he's a few episodes ago when we were talking about Nope, I let slip that I thought Ari Aster and Jordan Peele are the best horror directors of the generation. And that was a little bit of a short trip to Mike Flanagan. And I think maybe I kind of forgot about him because he's so entrenched in like streaming TV series horror right now. Right. He's been doing that the last few years. I think Dr. Sleep is his last movie as of now. I kind of forgotten how powerful his horror films can be as well. And that's even, I haven't seen them all. Haley, our friend Haley uh-huh. recommended Ouija 2 because oh, apparently he directed only the sequel to Ouija, not the original. Okay. Uh, and the original was, it's such a strange thing. Like there are sequels people argue about, maybe they're better than the original, but this 
is the only one I can think of where everyone's like, it's a hundred percent, 20 times as good as the original. Like the original is a piece of shit. And then he put out this movie that was just like critically a roaring success. Wow. <laughs> like imagine making a sequel to the Bye Bye Man and it just happened to be like a masterpiece. That's basically what he did. Horror is kind of like that where it's like, if you have a title that had some success, you can get a green light and it's just a blank slate. It's just a permission to make a movie with the same name and some piece of the original in it. But like, it doesn't have yeah, to Yeah, you be just have fake. to find some way to connect it to that. Or if you're a troll too, you don't even have to try. They just, oh, okay. they named a troll too and it had nothing to do with the original troll. There you um, go. And it's famously the worst movie ever, apparently. I've seen it many times. I think it's <laughs> so, worst movie. Yeah. So there's, there's downsides to sequels. But yeah, Flanagan is really good. I wasn't all that aware of him and did a little more research on him, but there's a lot I have to catch up on. I haven't seen Gerald's Game. I started to check out Midnight Mass, which is one of the recent Netflix streaming successes that he created and has been responsible for. Great sensibilities. Really, I think he was absolutely on the top of his game in this movie. I think it was a perfect meeting of everything that he's into. And I think he's great with the adaptations. And maybe it's just my take on Midnight Mass, but I feel like the quality level of the writing, the intent is there, but it's not as sharp and really on point as Dr. Sleep came out. So I'm giving Stephen King some of the credit. I think The Haunting of Hill House is on par with Dr. Sleep. Um, That was his first series he made for Netflix. And that's really good. And that actually came out before Dr. Sleep, but he clearly had a good relationship with them because he had done Gerald's Game for them. And one of his earlier movies, I think Before I Wake, was a direct to Netflix, but it wasn't supposed to be. The distributor went bankrupt or whatever, and Netflix bought it for cheap. But that kind of kickstarted their relationship. I guess it probably did well for them. And they thought this guy can take on some more projects for us. And now he's he probably has his own office in Netflix headquarters. Yeah. <laughs> he's putting stuff out for them nonstop. He's got two shows this year coming. That's wild. Um, the Fall of Usher. They haven't really announced the date for it. It could be late this year or it could be early next year, but The Midnight Club is dropping now. He is probably one of the busiest people in Hollywood the last few years. Because he also, he writes and edits them too. He edits them, which is That's crazy. Yeah. Being a writer-director is like a huge thing. And then being the editor, and I didn't look into that deeply. I didn't see anyone else credited as like assistant editor that's like doing a lot of the hard work. Because just the labor of assembling dailies and making rough cuts is this huge thing. That's why you employ like an editor with multiple assistants to work on a feature film. And I'm like, who are these people? And how is Flanagan doing this work himself? Have we been lied to about how busy directors actually are? And he's just, no, man, it's not that hard. You could do it all. Just chilling, getting a movie done in my spare time. We always hear Soderbergh is the busiest man in Hollywood. He's always mm. like editing one movie at night while he's filming his next one. Okay. But Flanagan might have him beat because he's not doing movies. He's doing, you know, 12 hours That's of true. television like twice a year. So much more content time-wise. Crazy yeah. stuff. So glad he's doing it. Keep it up. He's leaving behind quite a legacy. Just in five years, he's putting out some really great stuff. And I don't know that much about him, but I listened to the full director's cut commentary, which he did live for a podcast called The King Cat a popular Stephen King podcast. He talked his way through the full three hours. So that's my only experience with him. And I'll quote it a lot on this episode because I gained a lot from listening to him. The dude also seems really normal. He's a family man. He's got little kids running around the house while he's doing this podcast commentary. And he seems really chill. He doesn't seem like a sort of intense megalomaniac director who you might assume he would have to be to do this level of work, especially in the horror genre. He seems really normal and cool. So that's just more points in his favor. You've spent a tremendous amount of time watching and listening and thinking about Mike Flanagan this week. (laughs) You watch this movie twice and listen to a full length commentary (laughs) track on it. It's interesting though. It's, I do, I mean, it's testament that I love this movie. I was surprised myself. I knew that I liked it and I remembered it fondly. And then I'm like, I'm so into it. And I kept asking myself, why am I so into it? That's something I will try to talk about as we go through the movie. Is it just me? Is this movie specifically tuned to the things that light me up? Is it just me right now? Or is it like, I don't know. The critics seem to respond to it well too. It's just that it didn't really find the audience. No, I don't think it's just us because spoiler alert, I'm also a big fan of this movie, but This movie has a large fan base and also its fan base transcends horror to some degree. Like it's not just the usual hardcore fans who watch every horror movie that comes out that are into this movie. It seems like it's cap 
captured the imaginations of even a casual viewer who is maybe usually a little squeamish about this type of stuff. And that's truly an accomplishment because Flanagan stuff, you know, it's not gory and there's not jump scares. So I feel like it can transcend the people who watch horror on a regular basis because it's not so intimidating to get into it. You're not going to see the grossest thing ever or just have those dissident cello strings at every turn. He's about building atmosphere and it's a little more, it's a little deeper. He investigates trauma a lot in his work. He just uses horror to tell more human stories. So I think that's why it connects with so many people. Yeah, there's such a great human story of several of them running through this that, yeah, it works as an emotional drama about a man coming to terms with his past as well as being a cool, creepy, scary movie. Mm, Yeah. Oh, there's scary stuff in this movie, but it's the type that lingers with you and it's not like you do the jump and then you're over it. It's a little deeper than that. All right. You want to walk us through the first part of the movie? Yeah. Let's get to sleep, as they say. They don't say that. Rose the Hat is the powerful leader of the True Knot, a gang of evil psychics who hunt, torture, and feed off steam, the life force of young children, children who are similarly gifted as they are with the psychic power known as The Shining. As a child, Danny Torrance also had The Shining, which led to a terrifying episode at the Haunted Overlook Hotel. See The Shining. The hotel took the life of his dad, and after that, the ghosts kept haunting him until Danny learned how to lock them away in boxes in his mind. Now, as a grown man, Dan Torrance has sworn off using his psychic gifts, but his childhood trauma has led to a life of deeply destructive alcoholism. Looking for a change, Dan takes a bus to New Hampshire, where he makes a friend named Billy who helps him get sober, and a doctor named John Dalton who gives him a job at a hospice care facility. Elsewhere in New Hampshire, young Abra Stone might just have the most powerful shine anyone's ever seen, and both Dan and Rose the Hat are starting to learn she exists. Rose the Hat. Not the most menacing name. No. Someone's nickname is The Hat. It sounds like a real low-level mobster who's very self-conscious that he's going bald. Um, <laughs> exactly. Oh, there goes Vinny the Hat. <laughs> Always got his hat. There's also Jerry the Chunk. No, wait, is it Jerry? There's a lot of funny names in the True Knot. They're kind of a funny, jovial bunch. If they weren't so into torturing and killing children, you might find them charming. It is Barry the Chunk. Barry the Chunk, thank you. Yeah, they're like a, a roving little gang of hippies. I guess they're they're influencers because they're like living in a van, which is a very influencer- lifestyle. There's a bunch of those on TikTok. They're always trying to make it look glamorous. I know you have to poop in a compost toilet. It's not that glamorous, but they have a pretty nice RV set up. They travel to and from various campgrounds and just murder little kids along the way. It's a lifestyle. To live the van life lifestyle, you sometimes have to murder kids. And you got to wear a fedora. You do have to wear a fedora. There's a lot of hat wearing in this gang. They're not like hippie van lifers. They all kind of dress. What was that band Four Non Blondes? Oh. Remember like the Linda Perry band? Yes. Like Rose definitely dresses like Linda Perry to some Rose is doing a four non-blondes thing with the hats and the, yeah. she's a little bohemian in her style. But also at the same time, as a base layer, she's got some like Lululemon leggings on that are like totally modern. And then she's got this beaver pelt top hat that's according to the filmmakers, it is an actual relic from the 19th century. I think it would be fun if Rose has the hat, but like Crow Daddy has a hat too. Like people got hats in this gang. That's true. And she felt threatened because the hat is her nickname and she kept getting a bigger hat. And then, <laughs> but then Crow Daddy gets like a slightly bigger hat too. And then like there just becomes this cold war of hats. You know, everyone's <laughs> upgrading their hat when the other one's not looking. It's like that Keen Peel sketch where they were trying to like keep their hat as fresh as possible. <laughs> like we right. were wearing it with the bag still on. I remember <laughs> that. The true not prequel that I guess we're never going to get now. I guess not. So then we meet, the movie doesn't pick up right with Ewan McGregor as Dan Torrance. We do spend some time with young Danny and good impression of young Danny Torrance. I don't think that's a very hard impression to do because the character has like three lines in the original Shining. So there's not a ton to work with. But the actress who's playing 
saying young Wendy is definitely trying to do a Shelley Duvall impression. I liked her. I liked her and Danny both. They looked the part. And part of this movie is servicing the fans like the director himself, who are like big shining heads. And it's like, oh, yeah, they're doing The Shining. And they decided not to digitally recreate them. And they instead just cast people who told them to evoke those characters. And I think it was a good choice. Thank like, God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad they didn't go the CGI ghoul cutscene <laughs> route that Star Wars has embraced recently. Yeah. It never looks right. We're not there yet. And I don't know that we ever will be with the technology. So, yeah, she was maybe like leaning into Shelley Duvall's more dramatic tendencies a little hard, kind of like flailing her arms around like a wacky inflatable tube man um, a little much. But she definitely she had the vocal intonation. And she's yeah, she seemed like a good mom. You immediately warm up to her. The guy who they got to play Dick Halloran, though, replacing the great Scat Van Crothers was awesome. He nailed it. Yeah, he's so good because he's not doing a Scat Man impression, but he's bringing the same warmth. Skip it to me up. Oh, sorry. Can't <laughs> say Scat Man without doing a Scat Man impression. Doing some actual scatting. Yeah, Carl Lumbly as Dick Halloran kicks ass. He brings that same warmth and feeling of trust and like, oh, this is a guy I need to listen to that Scatman brought to the original character. And you're like, thank God, because especially in the director's cut, they give him a long scene in the beginning where he's lecturing young Danny about how things work and how to deal with the ghosts from the Overlook and all this stuff. And he goes on and on. But you're like, oh, I got to listen to this guy because he's the smart old mentor that I need right now. So Danny is the first lead of the movie, obviously. I think the co-lead is the creepy waterlogged naked lady from Room 237 because she gets a ton of screen time in this early section of the movie. So much screen time. The special effects makeup department made a killer naked rotten lady suit and they're like, we're going to show this off. Is there a bathtub in this location? I swear there's a scene where Danny and his mom are sitting at the park and there's like a fountain. I was like, is she going to be in the fucking fountain too? And I was shocked when she wasn't. Why does that fountain have a shower curtain? Is there something behind it? <laughs> Someone has to creepily reach behind it. So many times. No, she popped up and I was like, oh, that's cool. They made a little fan service. It's a good creepy image, even if you don't know The Shining, but yes. you do. It's a nice callback. But then she's basically Danny's sidekick. And spoiler alert, he passes her on to someone else later. She literally steps out of the bathtub five, six times in this movie. Like, that might not be an exaggeration. It does start to get funny when they're in the <laughs> Overlook. And I'm like, is she going to, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> How many times? I also listen. I didn't finish that director's commentary that you were talking about, but Mike Flanagan said the actress was just in the full body suit and she was so used to it after a while. She was just like going to craft services in it. And they'd be like, you might want to put a robe on. <laughs> we know you're not naked, but. Might spoil your appetite. And then we get a little montage of meeting some new characters. We get a new member to the knot. We meet Snakebite Andy. She's a cool little story in herself. Feels like a very strong Stephen Kingy character and something that you would think that's something you would find in a novel and cut right out of the movie because I liked her, but she doesn't play a central role in the story. It's nice that there are like sub-level people in the true knot that can enact different parts of the action. But what did you think about having her in this movie? Her power plays kind of a big role at the end of the movie or right before the main climax of the mm -hmm. movie. But you could have just as easily had her already be in the group and just explain that's her power. She yeah. can kind of influence people to do what she wants. But instead, they, they do give her this origin story, which is well done and very interesting. But sure, if you were looking for something to cut, you could easily just have a line about what she's capable of and cut that whole movie theater scene out. Because they show her in the wild being this teenager who gets revenge on men who are child predators. And then Rose and Crow Daddy recruit her into the gang and she finds out what that means. So we learn a lot about what the true knot is, what it means to get jumped into the gang. But it's yeah. really in depth. That's more of what we're talking about. Like it does feel like a novel where you're like, okay, there's a whole chapters where you just spend time with the antagonist group. Based on the way we got introduced to her and she's kind of like an avenging angel, she's not going after innocence. She's going after people who right. you could argue whether or not they deserve it, but they're definitely not innocent. I thought she was going to be more conflicted then about where the group takes her and forces her to go and the things she has to do. But 
but we don't see that. So it, it was a little strange. I thought giving her this complicated backstory where you feel like she's lashing out because she's had her own trauma. Right. And she's trying to get some level of vengeance. But then that goes out the window and she's just picking off whatever kid looks tasty. She's fully nasty. Once she's fully jumped into the gang, she never has that turn back to, oh, wait, I remember who I used to be. But it's more of a commentary on what's the difference between the good shining people and the bad ones in this movie. And our other main hero, who's Abra Stone, straddles that line or at least flirts with the idea that she has a lot of edge to her, right? And so there's this idea that Abra could have this dark edge to her and Andy is an echo character of what if Abra goes bad? That's what it looks like. Yeah. Abra does walk up to the line a few times. She seems, she's not just trying to solve the problem. She also is looking to inflict a little pain on the people that she deems responsible for her predicament. Yeah. She has some real spunk to her and you love her for it. She's a great character. We'll maybe get into her more in the second act when she really starts to take over. But then now we meet grown up Dan now. He goes by Dan as an adult. Yes, please. Don't Danny anymore, please. He's fuck up, drinking, stealing money from his one night stand, even though she's got a cute little kid who's probably not the most well looked after. Uh, no. <laughs> the level of dirt on his face when we meet him. But then he goes to New Hampshire, he goes to Fraser, New Hampshire, made up town. I looked it up. And <laughs> he meets Cliff Curtis. Which, yeah. who wouldn't want to meet Cliff Curtis? We love Cliff Curtis here. We do. Last time we saw Cliff Curtis, he was staring at the sun. Staring at the sun. Episode 61, Sunshine, Danny Boyle film shot by Alvin Kukler. But he's maybe too nice to be a, like a real person. He just seems like the friendliest, sweetest man. Yeah, he's a stereotype and a trope, and they have to kind of shortcut it so that you don't spend a long time with Dan hanging around a park and looking for a friend. Cliff Curtis just walks right up to him and is like, I know who you are. You're a guy having hard times, and I'm a guy who's a friend to people like that. Why don't I give you a job? And you're like, okay. Cliff Curtis sells it pretty well. So like we move on through that part of the story. Cliff also takes Dan to his first AA meeting. He decides to get sober because Bruce Greenwood tells him to. And I was like, who can say no to yeah. Bruce Greenwood? But then they go and he has a nice little talk with Bruce. Oh no, actually before he leaves, he does this little thing that our man Timmy Oliphant did in Dreamcatcher. Right. Where he decides to use his special gift to a creepy degree and make everyone uncomfortable because he's, oh, what does he say? He's like, you lost your watch while you were thinking about Goucher's, right. Goucher's, Goucher's, and he's trying to pronounce the word that he's seeing in his mind psychically. You were dealing with the kid with Goucher's and you left your watch on the counter. And if you remember, our boy Timmy Oliphant was trying to hit on a lady in Dreamcatcher right. who had lost her keys and he just walks her right up to them. And But like along the way, he has all these unnecessary flourishes. Like you came into this convenience store and you bought a candy bar and it was this brand. And she's like, oh, you're a stalker or a crazy person. Either way, I don't <laughs> want anything to do with you. But luckily, Bruce Greenwood doesn't have that reaction and he embraces Dan and gives him a job as an orderly at his hospice care center. More character building, right? Because nothing happens in the rest of the movie at the hospice care center except kind of finding himself both in AA yeah. and in the hospice, which is his, most of his life up there in Fraser, New Hampshire. is just about him like dealing with alcoholism, getting sober, working a regular job. And then fortunately what the hospice care lets him do is deal with his gift. He's shunted it away. He's like, I'm never ever going to fucking use the shine again because it ruined my life as a kid. And it kind of creeps back up on him because he can tell when these old sick folks are dying and he has the ability to make them feel better by talking to them about the journey to the other side. Is that a good description of what how he becomes Dr. Sleep? Yeah. But then it raises another question, which is if he is ushering all these elderly folks to their death so efficiently that he has a fucking nickname about it, like, don't you think somebody's going to be like, are you killing these old people, man? Because they're all talking like, oh, if Danny orderly comes to visit you, that means you're going to die that night. It's a little counterproductive because we know he's actually 
she being helpful, but he might be too helpful in the eyes of the hospice center. Yeah. Dr. Sleep is the kind of nickname that usually the media gives somebody when they're on trial for this kind of thing. <laughs> We're like, oh yeah, that's the orderly who killed all the old people in the hospital. I guess because it's a hospice care and it's not just like a cancer ward, he's not accused of actually offing the folks they're expected to go. Coming to Peacock this spring, James Vanderbeek is Dr. Sleep, the chilling true story. It's exactly <laughs> like that. And it is heavy stuff. And they spend a lot of time with him just chilling with old folks and talking about old times and telling them, don't be scared. And he's got a little kitty cat that helps him. So it's pretty cute. The cat lands on you. That's wonder if he has like a nickname too. Oh, it's the paws of death. He's coming. He's in my room. Death claw. Oh, there's death claw. Have you fed death claw <laughs> this afternoon? He's acting like he's hungry. Before we move on, I did want to note that the office that Bruce Greenwood has is an exact recreation of the office where Jack meets with the gentleman who offers him the job as caretaker of the Overlook Hotel in the oh, original wow. Shining. Okay. They recreated it down to even like the pictures on his desk, little knickknacks, things like that. So that was Flanagan doing some heavy fan service there. He seems like he's really heavy into this stuff. Like he is a total King nerd and a, also a total Kubrick nerd. And so he just nerded out on this project. And it sounds like they did a ton of things like that where they went really insane on the level of detail. Some of the stuff is like straight up recreations. And we'll get to that later when we see bits of the Overlook Hotel. And so those are recreated on purpose. Some of them are done as Easter eggs like this because there's no reason why right. Dr. John, whatever his name is, Bruce Greenwood's office. That's all, that's all he's known. <laughs> yeah, Dr. John, the famous- That's a pediatrician's uh, name for sure. It makes sense. Also a great uh, New Orleans piano player, singer. Dr. John, that's right. Oh, I might have a hip maneuver we might could pull. That was my Dr. John impression. I like that. He, he was on Top Chef once, like oh, doing okay. hot sauces. Like, this is a real smooth maneuver you did here with this hot sauce. That's my Creole accent. I'm sorry. It's probably not good and or offensive. Works for me. You got a real hip maneuver. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to find it. If I could find the Top Chef Dr. John <laughs> clip, I will put it in the show notes, okay. but I'm not sure if they want that out in the world because it was pretty hilarious. It wasn't the highlight of the show. It was for me. Nobody okay. knew what to make of him, though. RIP. I think he did pass away. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. RIP, Dr. John. But we also, we did want to talk a little bit about this long monologue that Dan gives at Alcoholics Anonymous, which uh-huh. between Alcoholics Anonymous, Dr. Sleep speech, and the Narcotics Anonymous, Carmi Berzato speech from The Bear, we were uh, getting a lot of good, long, single-cut monologues at uh, these meetings. It's a good era for that. Yeah, we get another great long monologue at the end of this movie from Dan, but we're not there yet. There's not much to say about it, except you don't really go to the Dr. Sleep movie expecting one of the most poignant meditations on alcoholism and family trauma that you've seen in a movie, but yeah. you get it here. Like, it's really well done. You really get it. And you see a lot of A-list actors do horror movies sometimes, but you don't expect them to do their big, meaningful, dramatic monologues in those same movies, right? Okay, Ewan McGregor's in this and he can do blockbuster stuff and he can do some serious indie stuff. But here he is in a mainstream Stephen King horror movie and he's doing indie movie monologues. And this is only one of them, like you said, and this one is great. He just owns it so hard. He plays it understated. Uh, you know, one of the behind the scenes things that I learned about this is one of the reasons that Flanagan cast Ewan McGregor over other people is that Ewan McGregor himself is sober. He's longtime sober. Mike Flanagan, the director, got sober during the filming of this movie, finally found it in himself to take that step after writing and directing a movie that's largely about the same topic that he was struggling with in his life. So there's a huge amount of resonance between the people who are making this film and the subject matter. And it, it comes through, it's handled just really well, just a really great tone and some really moving acting. 
Agree. No argument here. It's a, it's really is a high, like the, the addiction, I don't even know if you can call it a subplot because it's really on the surface, but it's so well handled and it really does kind of take center stage in the movie. And it's quite good. One of the better deep meditations on addiction I've seen in a movie in a long time. Surprising to find it here, like you said, but really enjoyable. Do you want to walk through the middle of the movie? Yeah. Let's hear what happens next. We're heading for a showdown. All right. The members of the true knot are hungry for steam. So they track down and kill a young little leaguer with psychic talents. As he dies, the boy's psychic screams are picked up by Aberstone a thousand miles away, and Abra becomes determined to locate and identify his killers. Abra has two separate psychic encounters with Rose the Hat, where the two probe and learn about each other. These confrontations demonstrate Abra's remarkable power, but they also make her into the True Knot's main target. Abra goes to meet her psychic pen pal, Dan, for assistance, but Dan tells her to forget the boy and to hide her shine from the world. But the ghost of Dan's childhood mentor, Dick Halloran, convinces Dan he must help. So Dan and Billy go find the baseball boy's grave, and Abra uses his glove to get a fix on the True Knot, who are headed their way as the two sides prepare for an inevitable showdown. There's, I was about to say, there's a lot of fun stuff in this middle section. There's a lot of terrible stuff in this middle section, and it starts with Baseball Boy. Well done, but not, yeah, but not fun. Let's talk about Baseball Boy, our boy Jacob Tremblay, fine young actor, really loved him in Good Boys, really funny, good movie. But here he's doing straight terrified child, yes. and he's pulling it off with spades. This would almost feel like too much if it didn't factor into the rest of the story the way it does, you know, like if his death was just purely, we got to show you how bad the knot is and how evil they really are. But no, his death sends shockwaves throughout the world among these people, and is a catalyst for the main conflict of the movie. It doesn't feel exploitative or anything like that. Like child murder in a film is always tough. It's always tough regardless, but it's a very hard subject to do. And especially when it's so visceral as it is in this scene, it's not a gory scene at all, but it's just his screams are so haunting. His pleading, like he plays it really real. So yeah, folks, if you're sensitive to this stuff, this part of the movie is hard to watch and you might turn away from the screen and it's a little bit shorter and it's edited to be a little bit easier to take in the theatrical cut. So if you're worried about, I don't know if I could take that scene, maybe that's a reason to watch the theatrical because they don't do so many close-ups on his face and they don't extend the torture part too long. But like you said, they make it work. They make it meaningful. It's not just exploitative, but man, he's pleading for his life there. And he's like, please let me go. I won't tell it. Everything he says is like, oh God, it twists your gut and pulls at your heart at the same time. And it's really powerful. In most movies, somebody would hear and they'd get interrupted and he'd like sneak away. Like, no, there's just, there's no happy ending for him, no. unfortunately. It's very well acted on all sides. He apparently traumatized most of the actors who play the true knot. They were feeling the effects of just hearing his terrified screams. And then as soon as Flanagan yelled cut, he just popped up and walked over to the craft service table and got himself a snack. He was very proud of himself. <laughs> Flanagan tells the story and his dad was in the trailer watching the monitors. He had worked up that scene with his dad's help and they shot his close up first. He poured it all out there and his dad had a big grin on his face and Jacob was pleased as punch because he knew he fucking nailed it. It is pretty rude that they have Snakebite Andy use mind control to get him in the van. Like, you got to give him a fair chance, right? His parents clearly taught him well. He refuses to get in the van the first time they ask. He's doing the right thing. And then she just uses mind control, essentially. It's cheating. (laughs) It is cheating. But if you're going to slaughter the boy and suck his psychic power for your eternal life, I guess you'll stoop to anything at that point. You're willing to take shortcuts. That's what's wrong with this generation. (laughs) True nodders. Yeah. And then, so Dan has this chalkboard in his room that he rents for $80 a week or something. Great, even by New Hampshire prices. 
messages. Yeah. And talks to Abra on it. They write messages to each other. And then Abra just writes in this big, like, cracked lettering, murder in yeah. giant letters. And I was like, you should erase that, man. You got the point. But he leaves it up for the entire fucking movie. It's unclear if other people can see it, because I don't think anyone else goes in his room that we see. To be clear, she writes it as Red Rum, right? Like, in his own personal style. I don't know how. I guess she's in his mind. So she used his tag-up style, some backwards R's and stuff. And yeah, it's not just scrawled on the wall. It's like cracked through the paint. His landlady's not going to be happy when she sees that. She was very clear. She has a lot of rules. She seems pretty strict. No tolerance for uh, noise or funny business. Also, he's been working as a orderly at the hospice and running the train for eight years. He hasn't saved up enough for like a slightly larger apartment. That's a good question. I think I kind of like that he's stuck there, that he's turned his life around, but these are not good jobs. He's driving right, a fucking yeah. little train on the town common. <laughs> he gets $4 an hour for that, I'm sure. And the hospice orderly can't pay much more. So yeah, he's still stuck in this little I mean, joint. He's also a huge weirdo from the outside <laughs> looking in. You would be like, I don't want this guy anywhere fucking near me. He seems extremely strange. He's just got a lot of trauma and psychic stuff going on that you can't can't really know about. And Abra's been talking to him on that chalkboard for eight years now, just writing little messages. It would suck for him to move out <laughs> like she can't find him. The next tenants is like, ah, what the fuck? Just running out, screaming. Again, if they can even see it. I don't know if this is like psychic chalk or <laughs> that's, real chalk. That's a good question. It's unclear. Kylie Curran as Abra Stone is great. Her family is very charming. Her parents are just like the right amount of scared of her because she's got these powers she doesn't really understand, or they certainly don't. And they're like a little afraid of her, but also they love her. And you could tell the dad, Zachary Mom. He's quite good. Yeah, I like him and shit happens to him in the third act, which we'll get to. But I like that mix of they're trying to bring her up in this loving home, but she's truly weird and she worries about it. And that's one of the themes of the movie is not just should I use my shine because it makes me vulnerable to scary people like the true knot out in the big world. It's like, should I use my shine and maybe just alienate my parents and they're kind of scared of me and that kind of makes my life suck. And she seems like a sweet kid, but also the stuff she's doing, she's using her mind to play a piano, putting spoons on the ceiling and just yeah. having them like hang there. Like you'd be fucking freaked out too. There's no way around it. It's freaky shit happening. Abra is weird. She's got an edge to her the whole time. Starting from when she's four or whatever she is in that first scene. She's kind of a little weirdo and it's great though. It makes her a really lovable character because then she grows up and she's just got a lot of moxie. She's like making decisions on her own and doing big, scary stuff. Just like, fuck the world. I'm here. You got to deal with me. And her steadfastness and Solving baseball boys murder and like Dan we like him but also we're like kind of being a little bit of a bitch about this right now man like a little kid got murdered yeah you know, step up he refuses until Abra kind of forces him to and they're nice they're kind of equals like Dan is a big figure in this but he's a beaten down man and she's this incredibly energetic kid and they end up being equal partners at their last third of this movie and it works well both the actors and the performances and the, char- the way the characters are written really makes that work Dick Halloran does his job too to bring Dan over to her side of things but they make an, a really interesting duo so then we have the face-off between Rose and Abra in the grocery store. And I was confused here. I thought they ate steam from little kids, but she's got like a basket full of other regular food. And she's in the frozen section, I think, when the showdown happens. So you have to eat regular food and little kids? You can't, like, you don't see vampires going out and eating real food. It is unclear. They're not quite vampires. They're vampire-esque. But yeah, one of the things she has in the cart, and I saw it on the second watch after I heard Flanagan talk about it in the commentary, is a can of boiled peanuts. One of the worst foods anyone can ever eat. I'm sorry for my Georgia friends and listeners. I've never eaten it, but yeah, it's not a, we're not talking about a bag of peanuts. We're not talking about a jar of planters peanuts. We're talking about a five pound tin can of boiled peanuts. I don't know what that's like when you open it up and I maybe hopefully never find out in my life. God willing, you never learn because 
fucking disgusting. But apparently, so the little story that Flanagan tells is Rebecca Ferguson picked that out in doing her deep research for this character. She decided what each member of the True Knot would want from the store, and she made the shopping list, and she filled that card. It's pretty funny. But it is nice seeing her get her ass handed to her, because we're like, yes. we hate Rose more than we hate anybody right now, like more than any other movie character, because she just killed Drake of Tremblay yeah. in a very graphic scene. So we're like, whatever happens to this lady isn't enough. So you never feel bad for her again. Because Rebecca Ferguson's quite charming. It is a good decision on the movie to make her so hateable. It's a really nice mix. She's an anchor in this movie because of her really interesting mix of charm and evil. And this is a part where I really credit Flanagan for figuring out how to illustrate mental battles, right? And we know that there are pitfalls that you can fall into when you show people with psychic powers. Getting into beam battles, it happens a lot. It's very hard to illustrate on screen. And yet here we have a thing that's, I love the atmosphere in the store. Abra finds herself inside Rose's head. She like wakes up and she looks down and sees the cart below her because she's looking out of Rose's eyes, pushing this cart. And just the way the filmmaking moves there to illustrate what's going on with their internal battlers, I thought beautifully done. And that's for me is the fun of this genre is, okay, what's Stephen King's world? What's Mike Flanagan's version of it? How does the magic work? How does the psychic magic work? And how does it play out? And Rose goes over to the freezer case so she can look in the mirror and try to peer back at Abra. And Abra kicks her out and blasts out the glass and blasts Rose 20 feet down the aisle. And it's it's very, very cool scene. Really cool scene. It's when we're really starting to understand how powerful Abra is. And she's relatively inexperienced and still kind of learning her own limits. So if she can take out Rose like that relatively easily, we're starting to understand that she's a force to be reckoned with. It's badass. And then they face off again in this section, not immediately, but not a ton of time passes where Rose decides, I'm going to go look for you. But little she know, Abra has set her quite a trap. And another Stephen King favorite, also another callback kind of to Dreamcatcher, is the memory warehouse. Yes. Because Jonesy had his own memory warehouse and Dreamcatcher and Abra and theoretically all these characters in Dr. Sleep have them as well. But Rose gets her hand caught in the cookie jar trying to access Abra's memories quite literally because Mike Flanagan loves a fucking degloving scene and I had to <laughs> suffer through another one in this. Gerald's game has one. One of my least favorite injuries to see depicted on film. Oh no. Yeah. I don't know why. It just, it gets like something, it gets under my skin when I, again, no <laughs> pun intended, but she pulls off like a bunch of her skin when she gets her hand slammed in a filing cabinet and then has right. to really work to pull it out. She and, yanks it out yeah. of there and leaves a lot of skin behind. Picturing <laughs> it now. It's one it's, of the more yeah graphic bloody parts of the movie because it's not really a movie about blood and gore. Right, which is why my guard was down. Like ordinarily right. when I think there's any chance of a degloving scene, I'm like, ah. And also this was a this is a metaphorical memory warehouse scene. So it's about filing cabinets and card catalogs. And yet this is the, <laughs> the bloodiest and most gruesome body horror in this scene as well. Just thrown in there for good measure. Right. Once the Dewey Decimal System gets involved, I'm like, the stakes are relatively low for violence. But no, Flanagan throws another curveball at us. Abra shows up really awesome again in this scene because she's tricked Rose into thinking she's asleep in her bed and Rose has the drop on her, but she doesn't. She was faking it and she pops up. She's got her eyes are smooth oh, over scary. for some reason. She looks scary as hell. She's got this wig on that I think is a reference to an anime character that she's a fan of whose posters are on her walls, but I didn't, I don't know enough to really get the oh, reference. Interesting. Yeah, there's, yeah, she has a, she has posters on her walls and a figurine on her bed. And I think that's her look in that scene. Maybe a reference to that, but fuck it. We're just a movie podcast. We don't know what's in the movies we're watching. <laughs> that's as deep as I go on that one. But she looks scary as hell. So she's basically now tormenting. Look, you're not going to get me to Google anime <laughs> stuff. I don't care how much I like the movie. Okay. In fact, Abra went down a couple points in my book uh, that she's- Now that you found fan. out who this- It may not, I don't even no, know. No, I'm kidding. There's nothing wrong with liking anime, except when you like it like too much. I regret not researching it before bringing it up right now. We Googled. It's an anime called Ruby. Check it out in the show notes. But anyway, she looks badass, but then she does like a really silly, in that Stephen King silly memory warehouse thing, she traps Rose 
in her warehouse, which is just a big wall of white filing cabinets. And she goes into Rose's warehouse, which Rose herself describes as a cathedral of knowledge. And she goes in there and she pulls out the card catalog. She's literally going through the Dewey Decimal System at high speed as this little gremlin version of herself. And it's both scary and (laughs) freaky and hilariously ridiculous at the same time. Yeah. She's definitely not a shrinking violet or a damsel in distress. We get the sense early on that she's not to be fucked with. And that's to the movie's credit, because how many times do you have to just like worry about the little kid in a movie? And this time you're like worried about everyone else. Yeah, it's cool. All right. You ready to walk us through the ending? All right. Bringing it home. Dan and Billy stage an ambush in the woods where most of the True Knot members are killed, but not before the True Knot kills Billy. While the guys are away, Rose's right hand man, Crow Daddy, kills Abra's dad and kidnaps Abra. But with psychic help from Dan, Abra escapes and kills Crow Daddy. Dan then comes up with a plan for how to defeat Rose, so he takes Abra to the abandoned Overlook Hotel. There, Dan's presence wakes up the hotel and its ghosts, just as he did as a child. When Rose arrives in pursuit, Dan confronts her, but she gets the better of him until he unlocks his psychic boxes and unleashes the hotel's many ghosts. The ghosts grab Rose and they feast on her steam, but then they turn on Dan and he's almost taken over by the evil spirits of But with a heroic effort, he urges Abra to flee while he stays behind and sacrifices himself to burn the hotel down. Abra survives and Dan becomes her benevolent ghost mentor, just as Dick Halloran had been for him. Good ending there. Like they, they do a nice little fake out where you think maybe Dan has lived, but that would have been cheap. Yeah. So it wasn't, they didn't try very hard to fake you out though. You right. find out almost immediately what's really going on. Yeah. There's a moment of what? It's like, oh, this guy's got to be a ghost. And he is. Yeah. Especially because he looks fine. Like yes. he got pretty fucked up at the overlook. So we think he'd at least be limping. He gets stabbed in his femoral artery right. with an ax. You're not going to be walking perfectly fine after that. So let's start at the beginning of the section because yeah. we like to jump around, but that's a little confusing. So they essentially lure the true knot into a trap, but the true knot is aware they're being lured into a trap because Crow Daddy sneaks away and it's just like this kind of side character as we see going after Dan and Billy. But like they knew they were getting lured into a trap. They still did a pretty piss poor job of preparing for it because they get fucking shot to hell. That's true. It does explain why they all have Glocks in their waistbands though. If they were totally caught off guard, you wouldn't think they just walk around with pistols at the ready, but they're ready, but not quite ready enough because the other guys have a nice firing position from up on the hill. and They have the high ground as Ewan McGregor is fond of saying oh, in other movies. True. You should have shouted that in this movie was a perfect opportunity. Except he didn't want to take them prisoner or give them a chance to surrender. They just opened fire immediately, which good for them because these people have mind control stuff going on. You can't give them a chance. And like you said, at this point, we are conditioned to say, fuck these guys. They did the most awful shit we've ever seen on screen. So we love to see them die. They flop around and turn into skulls and then vanish into steam. And then we love seeing Rose. Like each time one of them gets shot, they quick cut to Rose just screaming in agony at the psychic agony and feeling her compatriots be killed and it just it feels good it feels good to see her really suffer (laughs) she absolutely deserves it but unfortunately i thought it was clever because it seems like they do try to shoot andy like in the throat but she still has enough to croak out one last command to billy which is kill yourself And unfortunately, he is powerless to resist and just in an absolutely devastating scene, puts the gun under his chin and pulls the trigger. Happens real fast and it's just brutal as hell. It's good. It's like something from an older movie. It reminded me of Jessica Jones a little bit because, you know, Kilgrave has a very similar kind of power and I think he uses it that way once or twice. That was scary as shit. Um, I remember Kilgrave. But we also covered a movie where somebody could do that. Oh, The Dark Tower. Another King thing. Oh, right. uh, The Man in Black, Matthew McConaughey. 
McConaughey tells us to that was to, his uh, thing underlings yeah. to kill each other and then walks away or he tells that one guy to stop breathing and just makes him oh, yeah that sucks suffocate himself so yeah that is thing King seems to go back to but it's very horrifying in nature to not be in control of your own actions especially when you're ultimately ending your own life so I understand why he goes back to that well he's yeah. effective every time that's pure horror that's really good stuff then Crow Daddy was not with the rest of the true not he was at Abra's house ambushing her dad yeah unfortunately suck to see him uh, taken out that way luckily we don't see it that might have been a bridge too far we just find his body later right. when never sees him Abra gets injected and kidnapped by Crow Daddy and then we get a nice little a nice little showdown between Crow Daddy and Abra in the car she's powerless now she's been sedated so she can't access her shine they're just having a little conversation and it's a nice little battle of wits the type of stuff that maybe you don't have time for in every movie but this movie's willing to take its time and give us these scenes that are some of the most memorable for me maybe they don't do a ton to move the plot forward but we're learning about everyone and it's just good dialogue written stuff acted it's a pleasure to watch Flanagan is not afraid for some of the biggest most impactful scenes to be really quiet and either monologues or just little conversations this is a cool one she's in the truck she barely has any shine because he's got secret drugs from the NSA the true knot has, has yeah they drop the conspiracy stuff <laughs> he's working with the NSA and they someone else makes a comment like I don't think we can call the cops on these people I think they're too well connected which is interesting they've yeah. been around forever they've probably accumulated power and friends in high places yeah nice little like hint to the larger world stuff going on here without spelling it out too much you don't see anything of that he just drops that little idea and so she has to call her friend Dan the only guy she knows who can help who shows up in her body and pulls off a really cool thing which is also part of Kylie Curran's great performance when she's channeling Dan inside her body she basically has to do a Ewan McGregor impression in the scene kind of change her way of speaking and her cadence yeah and she she does a relatively accurate I think facsimile of what Ewan McGregor sounds like obviously not one-to-one but it makes sense because you know you have to channel it through somebody else it's something we get lost in translation I always love seeing that like in Face Off where Travolta's trying to act like Cage and Cage is trying to act like Travolta <laughs> or in other movies where people switch bodies and it's always just an interesting acting thing to see like how different someone can make their performance be too yes it's not an easy thing to do I don't think they didn't go the cheesy route which is like to pump his voice through her lips they changed her eyes blue but it's just her it's just her giving the performance with her own voice it's really effective and it's also it's well written it's a great scene the Dan character just like Crow Daddy we fucking got you I love that line reading from Zahn McLaren where like once she says one thing as Dan he immediately knows and he just goes so who are you now he's not even like really bothered by it it's so casual it's just a really cool exchange yeah he's like I'm the guy who killed your friends and then he has this really chill cool monologue about a lot of people died but didn't change it was all for nothing yeah it didn't change the outcome didn't change the outcome but then he kind of knows that they got the drop on him and set him up with a car off the road yeah with a great death for another one of the villains in this movie just something about how he's so arrogant of course he wouldn't wear a seatbelt because he's gonna live forever and then she forces him off the road and he flies out the windshield it was awesome and then rose lets out the most anguished wail of all another one that warms our hearts and then we get to the overlook and i thought it was really cool that they used a lot of the footage from the shining of them driving up to the overlook and just changed it to nighttime and added in snow which which is just another like could have filmed it and wouldn't have probably been noticeable to most people but a nice little easter egg for fans of the shining and yeah flanagan kind of showing his reverence for the source material a little more he, he was so hardcore and that was just one of the examples of it but i actually flipped on the shining like i read about that same thing i'm like i feel like i just saw that same shot in dr sleep and yeah i did 
And then we have to say what annoying people always say about locations like the Overlook Hotel or New York City in any movie or show ever. It's basically a character all its own. But the <laughs> Overlook really is because there's a lot going on in there, a lot of spooky stuff. Probably the only true jump scare in the movie happens right when they walk into the Overlook Hotel. I know you called it out in your notes, but that fluorescent bulb that like pops or drops yeah. from the ceiling, whatever it does, it just makes a really loud, random noise. And you're like, ah, what the- Yeah, Flanagan again makes a really interesting choice. This is the climax of the movie. We've just had this very loud shootout, actual sort of gunpowder shootout in a supernatural movie. And now we have people in a big cross-country car chase. And then we get to this hotel and it gets real fucking quiet, man. Ewan McGregor (laughs) walks through the hotel for seriously like five minutes, just going down hallways and lights are like slowly flickering on. And you're kind of waiting for a jump scare because you're like, in horror movies, you can't just walk down a spooky ass abandoned hotel hallway without a jump scare. And there's, there's not the traditional kind. It's not really a ghost pop out and scream in your face kind of jump scare. But there is one fluorescent light that's really loud when it pops on and you're like, fuck it, god damn it. But that was never really the way of the scares in The Shining either. Right. I think he's trying to be true to the tone that that movie established where it's creepier rather than scary. There is a question about whether or not this whole section really works. I think it does work, but a little less than the rest of the movie because part of what makes The Overlook so effective in the original Shining is that you spend so much time there before stuff starts really going wrong and you can kind of come to your own conclusion for a while at least about, is this something off with this building or is Jack Torrance just going crazy due to isolation and he's having withdrawal from alcohol? Mm -hmm. He's clearly just got anger issues already what's really happening here. And then of course, by the end of the movie, it's clear there is something supernatural at play at the Overlook. But here, like we already know all that and it has to reinforce it right away because if you haven't seen the original Shining, it wants it all to make sense. So we immediately walk in and there's spooky stuff everywhere. And it's a little less impactful than when the big battles start happening and the big scary stuff starts creeping out of the bathtub. It has kind of a fan service feel. And you and I know enough about these stories for that fan service to work well on us. But it did make me ask, does this work for other people? Do they really want to see these particular hallways and these particular twins and bathtub ladies and do they mean anything to them or does it just feel like you're just doing a parade of old hits that aren't yours? And then you get to the gold room sequence, which is just a fantastic, another fantastic monologue in this movie. Yes. But does that scene work for anybody who hasn't seen the original Shining and doesn't quite get the reference of the bartender Lloyd? You do have to know some stuff going in, but it's so beautifully done. The cinematography is beautiful, obviously, because it's trying to, in some cases, recreate the shots exactly of Kubrick's and the set and the lighting exactly. It's so cool. It's so great. I love it for the content of the scene and I also love it for the style and for the references. It's a triple threat of a scene. Did you see Passengers, by the way, the Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence movie on a spaceship? I saw the beginning of it. Ah, that's all you need to see. But there is a scene towards the end where they were clearly paying homage to The Shining. They have an android bartender and the room looks very much like this. But I do love the conversation starts out where, all right, spoiler alert, it's somebody who's clearly dressed up like Jack Nicholson. It's not Jack Nicholson. It's another actor. But playing Jack Torrance, who's now trapped in the Overlook as the bartender Lloyd. But then you wonder, because Danny is clearly trying to draw something out of this person have a conversation with his father, who's got a very complicated relationship with. And this guy is steadfast. My name's just Lloyd. I'm a bartender. I don't know what you're talking about. But then he gradually starts like slipping into a little bit more of like a Jack Nicholson impression Uh and using some of his affectations from the original movie. And like his acting style gets more and more Nicholson-ish. And he starts kind of showing those edges that the character had. And it's just a really well done scene. And then you come to realize, yes, he knows exactly who this is and they're on the level with each other. But it's really well acted and written and it's good stuff. It's a fantastic scene between two really good actors. And you know who the actor playing Jack Torrance is? Give it to me. That is Henry Thomas. And I'm like, Henry Thomas sounds like a familiar name. Why do I know him? That's fucking Elliot from E.T. 
No shit. He's still, he's still out there. Eh? <laughs> yeah. Can you believe that? Like, it's the last actor you would venture a guess would be brought in and just do this. Like you said, he's not doing Jack Nicholson impression, which could be dangerous territory to, and get corny real fast because what actor has had more impressions done of him in the 20th century? I mean, Christian Slater's been doing one in every movie <laughs> or role he's done since the beginning of time. Oh, and look at that. Henry Thomas is in The Midnight Mass. Ah. He plays Ed. He's oh, Ed okay. There you He's go. also in The Haunting. Oh, oh, he's a guy that Flanagan's worked with. He's a, a Flanagan dude. World's Game, Ouija Turn of Evil. He even in Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Bly Manor. Yeah, okay. that's his boy. He's also in the upcoming Fall of the House of Usher that Flanagan is making for oh, Netflix. can't wait to see that. Yeah, he's so good in this. He yeah. just hits just the right note and it's such a, a risky move for an actor to take on that role and go, oh yeah, you're going to play Jack Nicholson's character in The Shining. You're like, fuck. And he just right. embraced it and it's so good. And Ewan McGregor, I just love him in this scene because it's another, like you said, killer monologue. You would expect this in an indie family drama, right? It's about a guy coming to terms with his alcoholic father and the abuse that he suffered at his hands and what that means. And it's in the climax of a Stephen King horror movie. It's killer. Yeah, he's doing bomb back shit in here. Yeah. But he's doing it well, man. I was more into these scenes than any of the spooky, scary stuff, which I originally signed up for. It really flips you on your head, and you don't know why more horror movies can't be this good. It's <laughs> funny. Have this much to say. Usually in horror movies, I'm like super scared because I know a jump scare is going to happen. I'm going to see the monster, and it's going to be super scary. And those are the parts that I rewind because like I watch them through my fingers the first time, and then I hit rewind and watch them again because like oh now I got to see the monster now that I know it's coming. This movie, I was rewinding the dramatic lines. I'm like, did, did you yeah. and McGregor just say that? That was so badass, and I rewind and watched him say a line again. Man takes a drink. The drink takes a drink. The drink takes a man. It was like, just throwing that in the end <laughs> yeah. of Dr. Sleep. This is some real poignant stuff going on here. Yeah, uh, it's awesome. But then we got to get back to the horror movie at hand because Dan's conversation with Jack is interrupted because Abra's like, oh, Rose is here. Get it's out time here. To, uh, yeah. Time to get to it. And then they have a little like a face off. That's it's fine. They, it's nice to see Rose once again overmatched when uh, Abra kind of transports her to the hedge maze where Jack famously froze to death, but it's impossibly large now. We get a, a helicopter view of it or a drone shot of it and it's just a huge labyrinth that goes on for looks like miles yeah some kind of showdown is about to happen and sometimes the violence in this movie is weirdly quaint like she's just running up behind her and slashing her in the knee <laughs> yeah the back of the knee tendon which feels very stephen king too we've seen people's tendons slashed in stephen pet cemetery king I, think. I think he does it in pet cemetery yeah so that's uh, that has a very visceral feeling although there's not a lot of blood or anything and it doesn't seem to really hurt rose all that much i guess because it's a psychic version it's not the real world but interestingly one of the things i learned from the Flanagan commentary is that Rose versus Abra part of the maze battle was a reshoot that wasn't in the script and that wasn't in the first cut of the movie. Oh. And the studio said, you know what? It feels weird that Abra pieces out. Dan tells her to run and hide when he goes to have a showdown with Rose. And they're like, that feels like Abra's not really playing an active have the part. Agency. Yeah, yeah. In this end, which was actually, sounds like a really good note. And it, it did bring As her- I say, that's the rare studio <laughs> note that actually helps the movie. And it does feel good because you get another one of those Abra badass facing down Rose, but it doesn't quite work. But maybe it wasn't intended to work all along. Dan had his big plan, which was to unleash the hotel's ghosts on Rose. And so he had to dummy up and play rope-a-dope and take a lot of shots until he was ready to play his trump card. Yeah. At some point you you realize he had no intention of really leaving the Overlook. His goal was to get rid of Rose and get Abra out of there safely. And he achieves it. Even the scene where he's possessed by the hotel and he's being very menacing towards Abra. I don't know that scene worked either. The, it, you didn't really buy the danger ever. You knew that the movie wasn't going to go that way, but it's a tough 
complicated concept to wrap up with a showdown. There, there's so much at play here. It's not an easy thing to figure out how you're going to make it work. I think we both agree that the emotional climax, which happened in the bar between a dude and his dad, was much more satisfying than the sort of physical ghosts fighting each other climax that happened after that. I don't know. The Shining's ghosts are scary when they appear one at a time in a room or at the end of a hallway. When they're all yeah. in a big group and they're jumping on people and dogpiling, it's like, okay, that's kind of silly. Because they're all just dressed like weirdos. There's just <laughs> yeah. an old-timey butler, like a bellhop. Exactly. Like, none of them really look scary except for creepy bathtub lady. And we've seen so much of her at this point. Right. We're desensitized to bathtub lady <laughs> by now. And then they blow up, which good plan, blow up the hotel. Does that kill the ghosts? I don't think so, because Abra's still haunted by bathtub lady. It kills, I guess, the evil that is the hotel and the evil that is the set of ghosts who live there, are they each have their own identities. And so the hotel itself is done, but the ghosts can still get out and follow you home like they do in the Haunted Mansion at Disney. And that's that kind of <laughs> happens to Abra. The ghosts follow you home from the Haunted Mansion? That's the ending punchline of the Haunted Mansion when you're leaving oh. on the car and it shows you in the mirror and the hitchhiking ghost is sitting next to you in your little car. See, I've never done the Haunted Mansion. Oh, no. Uh, I've only been to Disney once. Okay. But I don't even know if Disney's still there after Hurricane you. <laughs> Sorry about the hurricane, folks. I didn't. I should have probably said that at the top of the show. Yeah, afterthought. So thoughts go out to everybody yeah, in Florida. Absolutely crazy devastation. This Ian had nothing to do with it, I assure you. Thank you. He's yeah. not that kind of guy. I feel terrible about it. And that's basically the movie. Three hours that flies by. Talking about the director's cut, obviously. Most of what I've referenced is the director's cut. I would never watch the theatrical cut of this movie. I don't see a reason to. Yeah. It's not bad by any means, but for the extra half an hour, it really does add a lot of cool stuff. If you're into what this movie has to offer, the director's cut is the best version of that. Yeah. All right. So do you want to get into some of the behind the scenes tidbits around Dr. Sleep? Yeah. What you got? I always like to talk about casting what ifs, and this movie has some interesting ones. We almost got a very different movie. So here's who was else was considered for the role of Dan Torrance. Okay. Dan Stevens. Okay. I'm a fan. I could see it, but he's maybe a little too sinister, like a little too Weasley even. Oh, okay. Like you don't trust him really, and that makes him a good, good complex protagonist. But I would say Dan Torrance isn't even that complex. He's mostly just a good guy. But like most of the time we spend with him in the movie, he's kind of turned his life around and he's just, he's a little bit of a coward, but he's got a really good heart. Yeah. And his intentions are always good. So I don't know if Dan Stevens could pull that off like you and McGregor could. Right. Chris Evans, I don't think I could see that. That would be interesting to see if he could reach deep and pull off some of these things, but it's not what you expect from him. Matt Smith, who's been just everywhere lately, shouts to our boy Matt Smith. We'll be talking more about him next week. But he, again, there's like a sarcasm to him that I don't know that works as well with Dan. Yeah. He's a little too, he always looks like he knows something you don't. Yes. Which is maybe kind of could pull off. for someone with a shine, I guess. Yeah. That works for like Stephen King characters in general, because they often have this sassy side that goes with whatever other characteristics they have. But it, yeah, it would be different than the Ewan McGregor version for sure. And if he could take time out of his busy schedule of making horrible apps and flipping houses, Jeremy Renner oh, was considered. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I can't picture that at all. Maybe I could. Before he was like, Jeremy Renner's one of the great falls from public opinion grace I can think of in the last five years. Uh -huh. And I can't even really put my finger on why. No, he's a good actor. He's a good actor. I mean, his performances in The Town, The Hurt Locker, like those are all time performances. Everyone just kind of hates him now. And I can't figure out why. But also I kind of do too. Yeah, we have adopted a knee jerk negativity towards him just because he he's weird. He just kind of seems like a dick. He said like his real passion is flipping houses. Okay, yeah, that's weird. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he makes terrible music, but he is a great actor. He might've pulled this off, but I think Ewan McGregor is ultimately a better actor than Jeremy Renner and probably the right guy for the role. I thought he was just an inspired choice. He made it so real for me. I really loved him in this. Wouldn't want to see anyone else. 
And then for Rose, Nicole Kidman, who is apparently a big Stephen King fan and was really into the idea of taking on the role, was considered. And Anne Hathaway. I could see both of them doing good stuff with that role. Yeah. Rebecca Ferguson, awesome. No need to even think about anybody else topping her. But Nicole Kidman would have been wild in this. And somehow I can see her in that hat. Does she have something else where she wore a hat like that? Nicole Kidman? Is that just my imagination? I feel like Anne Hathaway wore a lot of hats in the We Crashed series on Hulu. That was a very hatty character. I can't think of a Kidman performance with a big hat. I can't come up with what it was, but it's easy to picture either of those actors in a hat. But we loved, again, we loved. (laughs) Like that's all that goes into playing the character. Can they wear a hat? Do they have a head that a hat will sit on? Then they can do it. No, but Rebecca Ferguson, I'm glad she got the role, but any of these actors would have been good. Anne Hathaway, I feel like she got the Jeremy Renner treatment, but now we've come back around on her where people just kind of hated her because she was, I don't know, like enthusiastic about movies. It was weird, but now everyone loves her again, which is the correct opinion. Okay, good. Yeah, I didn't realize I hadn't tracked that, but yeah, there's a weird vibe people were taking towards her. So the movie dropped. They were hoping to get $30 million opening weekend. They ended up getting 14. So that is quite a drop. They weren't really sure why it failed. The movie was obviously getting good buzz, had good reviews. I guess early polling of even of audiences, like in, in test screenings, was really positive. So everyone who saw it liked it, but they may have overestimated the cultural footprint of the original Shining for younger generations. The movie skewed very old in its opening weekend demographics, which apparently is kind of a death sentence for a movie if you're not getting the kids in. Yeah. Um, and I guess because kids, I, certainly when I was younger, I would see movies multiple times. I was just much more of a theater goer. So if you can't lure those people into the movie, I guess it is a bad sign. So 67% of the opening weekend audience was over 24, which I guess is high. Okay. The movie was R-rated. I don't even, like, the movie was R-rated outside of language. I guess you could make a PG-13 version of this movie, but you'd probably have to cut a lot of the baseball boy scene. Yeah, I was Just for say. sheer terror, yeah. like, in horror. Jacob Tremblay made it R-rated, right, in that one scene. And there, there is some gore, but not a lot by any means. It's not that kind of horror movie. So yeah, you could have made a safe family version, but we like how intense they went with it. And there's almost no way to advertise this movie and put a trailer out or put a poster out that doesn't reference The Shining. So you really are relying on people's familiarity and memory of The Shining. And it's not like The Shining came out yesterday. Again, it's almost 40 years old by the time this movie comes out. That's kind of a situation of like, hey kids, if this looks good, go ask your parents about The Shining because you're going to like it. Maybe you can borrow their VHS (laughs) copy before the movie drops in theaters. So I guess with that in mind, it's not a huge surprise that the movie failed to find an audience. It also, it lost out to Midway, a future episode Midway, another Mm. bomb, took the top spot. And then the next week, Ford vs. Ferrari premiered and was, I don't know if it was a surprise hit, but it was definitely a big hit, made $31 million opening weekend. And it is like, if adult audiences are going to see Dr. Sleep, they're probably going to pick Ford vs. Ferrari over that because it was another great reviewed movie with real star power, clearly geared towards adults. Yeah, Um, very much so. That movie was too old for me. I'm like, I'm old, but I'm not that old. Right. I rolled my eyes a bunch. (laughs) I still like Ford vs. Ferrari, but it was clearly like, back in my day, racing cars. And I was shut up, man. (laughs) Yeah. Give me Speed Racer any day. I want ridiculous cars, not, not realistic ones. As for what the cast of Dr. Sleep is up to now, Rebecca Ferguson's like genre queen. She was in Dune as Lady Jessica. She was great. She's in part two, of course. She's a fixture in the Mission Impossible movies. Dead Reckoning is coming out next year. Part one, part two in 2024. She's in both of those. Nice. She's in a series called Wool, which I don't know what it's about. She was unfortunately... Oh, do you know Wool? I read a really cool independent sci-fi novel series called Wool. I wonder if it's based on that. People live in a giant silo underground? Yes. Oh, they're making a movie, but they're making a show. 
show about it. That's fucking cool. Yeah, that guy self-published his books on Amazon and became like a massive bestseller on his own with this really cool sci-fi world that he created. That's really neat. That's going to come to the screen. Can't wait to see it. And she's not just acting in it. She's a executive producer. So she seemed neat. like she was kind of spearheading getting the project made. I like the cast. Ian Glenn, who was Sir Jorah Mormont on ah, cool. Game of Thrones. Tim Robbins, Angela Yeo. We got Common in there. Rashida Jones. Nice. I'm, I'm into it. I'm going to I'm gonna check this out when it drops. It looks Sounds, like it's coming 2023. Neat. Yeah, you piqued my interest. I hadn't heard of this. It's in post-production already, so it's not something that's going to get canceled at some point. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, before, it, before it drops, it's definitely happening. Ewan, of course, went back to Star Wars. He starred in the Obi-Wan series. That was pretty bad, in my opinion. I don't know where you fell on that. I got bored with it right away. I watched the pilot. I'm like, oh, it's fun to see these people in these places. And I had that natural affinity for Ewan McGregor. But I'm like, what is he doing? He's sitting in some rocks and watching things happen. I just didn't get excited for it. He hasn't done anything major that I really loved since Doctor Sleep. He was in Birds of Prey, which I liked, and he was fun in it. And we'll be talking about that more in depth in a couple of months, I think. But he's got a bunch of stuff coming out soon. He was in Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. How many fucking Pinocchio movies do we need? I have no interest in ever watching another Pinocchio movie, unfortunately. He is in You Sing Loud, I Sing Louder, which is coming later this year. He's in The Land of Sometimes. He's doing a voice for that. He's in The Cow, playing Charlie Granger. He's in Everest, and he's in A Gentleman in Moscow. Those are all in various stages of production. Some posts some pre, some being edited. Okay. You Sing Loud, I Sing Louder is an Emma Westenberg movie. It sounds like a little indie drama. He plays a father driving his daughter to rehab and they're taking a road trip and they kind of reconnect with each other on that. Sounds like it could be cool. Yeah. So Kylie Curran is a little less busy. She hasn't done a ton of acting since this movie came out. Is she a musician or something? I don't know that she is, but it seems like a lot of our young actresses also have a hand in the music business. Because she's only been in, she's been a voice for Lego Star Wars. She's in Secrets of Sulphur Springs, which I guess is a TV series that I've never heard of. Didn't know that was a thing happening. And then she's going to reconnect with Mike Flanagan for The Fall of the House of Usher. Okay, neat. That'll be cool. I'm excited for that. Are you, do you know the original like story? I mean, I read it as a kid. I was into Poe for 10 minutes and I read through a bunch of his stuff. And so I remember a little bit about that. So I'm like, not going to dive too much back into it until I can watch what he does with it. Weirdly enough, she is not also like a musician or anything. She's just oh. an actress. Okay. I wonder if she's keeping her workload relatively light because she's maybe actually trying to like finish school. Sometimes we take that for granted. Maybe she's being responsible. Right. Like, we're like, why aren't these kids acting more? And it's like, oh, because they have to be kids. And she's one of the stars <laughs> of this Disney TV series. So it's not like she's not working. She's just got a day job and working that job. And I feel like with TV, since it's a little more predictable, you can schedule around your child actors a little better. You go to set every day as opposed to a movie where you're not needed every day. I'm I'm glad to see she's still working and also maybe trying to have a bit of a work-life balance because hate to see a child star fall into the usual trappings. Although I feel like that's gotten, we're just more aware of it now and we kind of handle them a little better. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, one of the saddest things you said at the end of your monologue was the Everstone movie got canceled. And I'm like, oh man, when I finish this movie and it finishes so strong on her, I'm like, damn, I, I want to see her movie. And it's a shame if it never happens. No, I agree. Great actress, great character. I do hope Flanagan can throw some of his newfound Hollywood wait around and try to get it done. That'd be awesome. I'd be tuning in day one. Did you have anything, any closing thoughts on a Dr. Sleep you wanted to touch on or did we kind of get them all? My summary take on this movie is that it's really a boutique movie. Flanagan is just this huge Kubrick nerd. He's this huge Stephen King nerd and he made it for himself and he made it kind of for Stephen King because what I learned in that commentary is when you make a Stephen King movie, you got to get his approval and involves quite a bit of back and forth and talking about what you're doing with it. And so he made it for himself. He made it for King. He made it for the fans who would appreciate all all the little shit he packed in there. And he made it so bookish. That's 
the backbone of the story is this story about mm-hmm. abuse and addiction and recovery of this middle-aged guy. And combine all that, it was never going to be Hollywood enough to really become a blockbuster. Maybe it could have made money. Maybe it could have broken even. But one of the nice things that Flanagan wrapped up his commentary with is that Stephen King himself told him, he's like, I saw Shawshank come out and flop. I saw these other big adaptations of my stories come out and flop. And you give them a little time and they find their audience. So he told Flanagan, be patient. You made a really good movie here. It's going to find its audience. And that's the nice thing is that it seems to already have done that and continue to do that. It seems like it was instantaneous. Once this thing hit streaming, like it was immediately a favorite and I can 100% see why. It's really like a top horror movie for me. It's up there in the pantheon. I will rewatch this movie often, probably for as long as I'm alive. It hits a pleasure center for me that very few movies do. And I did want to point out, you don't necessarily need to wine and dine Stephen King and get his approval for every little thing when you make a movie. I just think this movie's ties to Kubrick had him like with the hair on the back of his head already up because he right. famously has a combative relationship with Kubrick's film. And what Flanagan was proposing was pretty out there. We have to make your book, which is a sequel to your book and has almost nothing to do with Kubrick's movie, into a sequel to Kubrick's movie. Into both at the same time. And it's pretty impressive feat that he made it work. And actually, one of the things he's also said is that Stephen King told him he kind of reclaimed the Kubrick movie for him. It was like you said, right. King famously hated it. So I think right. that's quite a thing to warm Stephen King up to the Kubrick Shining is an accomplishment. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. We're super excited for next week. Another one that Ian's already seen and talked about on the show. It's Last Night in Soho. Oh, that's awesome. We're going to be covering for week two of Blastober, getting our Edgar Wright fix back. And more Matt Smith. The man's everywhere. He cannot be stopped. I thought we started the Blastober like too big. I was worried that, oh, we might have overshot the moon here. But now going strong again. Last Night in Soho. That's going to be so fun to talk about. We started last Blastober off with The Thing, probably. Like a top all time. two or three horror movie <laughs> of all time. So We're ambitious. We're not one for half measures. Yeah. Mike Erman Tratt would be proud. We're, we're not taking any half measures. That's right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to the pod. Give us a follow on Twitter at Pod. You can see what upcoming releases are, what movies we're going to be covering in the next few weeks. You can also email us, BlastZonePod at gmail.com. Any suggestions, feedback, questions. Love it. And uh, we'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone. This is-